thank you so much. I am just so grateful to be here with all of you today. I want to just welcome everyone here that's worshiping with us at Hilliard. I also want to just welcome those who are joining from one of our locations, Short North, Polaris, and Whitehall. It is just an honor to worship in community with one another. I also want to welcome those who are tuning in online and watching on television. And church, would you join me in a special welcome to those receiving today's message from Behind Bars. I'd like to begin today just by thanking and honoring God. I just, I'm so amazed that he allows us to, to worship him and to really dive into his word. And so my prayer today is that we unpack his word, that we are met with both truth and grace. I'd also like to thank our lead pastors, Chad and Katie, for the opportunity to be a part of an incredible church that is radically pursuing the heart of God. Will you join me in honoring them this morning? Words cannot fully express just how honored I am to not only serve under their leadership, but to also be entrusted with leading the next generation through our kids' ministry. Truly, I wish that everyone in this, heart, in this church could hear our heart that we have, the heart that we have for your kids, and more importantly, the vision that we have for what their church will someday look like. It's what excites us about coming in and getting to do the work that we do day in and day out. And because of that, I just pray and hope that everyone here today leans into this message and that we walk away today understanding what's at stake. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are and for the love that you have for each of us. Lord, I pray today that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Allow us to experience your presence, and would you today dismantle any walls that have built around our hearts that would prevent us from encountering the fullness of your glory. Help us to be honest with ourselves as we seek to draw closer to you. It's forever in your name that we pray, amen. I mean, you can, you can honor God, like you can, yes, give him your praise. Well, again, I'm so glad that we are here worshiping together. Um, my husband and I, Sheldon, we have been a part of Rock City Church for five years. And a fun fact about us, that's also Finley that you see, our little multi-poo, love him. Um, a fun fact about us is that we actually met at our Short North location. Not me and the dog, Sheldon and I. <laughs> um, so shout out Short North. And in honor of Global Sunday, I thought it would be fitting to share one of Sheldon and I's mission trip stories, which actually also happened to be our honeymoon. Now, for all the ladies in the room, I'm sure when you thought about your honeymoon and you began planning, I'm sure you often found yourself looking at pictures of beautiful beaches, you know, the, the resorts overlooking the water. That's truly what my heart was when I, saw, when I first thought that was going to be my honeymoon. So I put together an Excel spreadsheet of just about every Sandals resort. Um, that you can find that looked like this. And when I presented that to Sheldon, he presented a very different idea. You see, 
His entire family has been very involved in Burkina Faso, Africa. And so he thought it would be an incredible opportunity for us to use the funds that we would normally raise or use for a wedding registry to actually invest them through microfinancing loans in Africa. Now, let me tell you, when he first told me this, I pushed back because, I mean, I wanted the, the, the beach, the hotels, but very soon the Lord, I feel like, did a work in my heart, and we were completely in alignment as we wanted to build our marriage on something that would outlive and outlast us. So we decided, instead of honeymooning in Jamaica, to travel across the globe to Africa. Now, let me backtrack and remind you that I have a heart and a passion for kids. So when he first proposed this idea of a missions trip, in my mind, I thought we would be, you know, loving on kids and teaching them the gospel. But instead, the reality was most of our time was spent in rural Africa teaching small business owners about microfinancing loans. So... That wasn't my expectation, but, you know, my, I also thought because this was our honeymoon, you know, there was going to be like a little bit of romance, um, but the reality was that I contracted a stomach virus that left me needing to use the restroom every hour, on the hour, in a very, very small concrete bathroom located directly next to our bed. So... Our missions trip honeymoon looked absolutely nothing like my painted expectations in my mind. But what I will tell you is that there was a very specific prayer that was prayed over us by one of the village pastors that we would see come full circle in our marriage three years later. But we'll come back to that prayer a little later on in the message. But haven't we all at some point created expectations in our mind that don't look anything like our reality. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But in our defense, oftentimes these expectations come from a place of good intention. But that's what I'm hoping that we understand and discover today, that even good intentions not anchored to God's word can ultimately lead to disappointment and in some cases, spiritual death. Now, when Pastor Chad first asked me if I would be interested and willing to preach, he started by asking me if I was available today, to which I responded, yes, I was willing, and yes, I was available. He then went on to tell me that we would be in the book of Revelation. I was like, um, do you know this is my first time preaching? Um, and then it gets even better. He told me that I would be preaching on the dying church. I'm like, couldn't you give me Philadelphia, like the, the church that only got commended by Jesus? No, that's not what I was called to share today. But what I will say is that over the past few months, through studying this church and seeking wisdom from the Lord, I can tell you that if you lean in today, if you're honest with yourself, you are going to walk out of these doors more alive than you have ever been. Now, we've been learning about the seven churches of Revelation, and today we're going to look at Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis. But before we look at that letter, it's important that you understand the history of Sardis 
because the history of the city is a reflection of the church in many ways. The city itself is built upon a peak 1,500 feet above the valley floor, resulting in three sides of the city being vertical, smooth rock walls. Now, historically, the people of Sardis felt that they were naturally very prone to, to attack from the one side only, the only side that wasn't on a cliff. They felt that the other three sides, because they were vertical walls, didn't need guarded. They felt that they were impenetrable. And because of this, their enemies took advantage of their complacency. The city had a reputation of being impenetrable, yet it was overtaken and overthrown twice, once by the Persians and later by the Romans, each time from the unguarded sides. And you see, the church of Sardis suffered the same fate. Their reputation didn't match their reality. Now, a pattern that I'm sure you've begun to pick up on, if you've been here for the first part of this series, is that Jesus, when he writes to the church, often begins with commendation. Or in other words, he pats them on the back, gives them a little high five, good job, you're doing great, before offering his condemnation. Or in other words, where they really need to focus and improve. But in today's letter... There is no commending. Jesus is quick to point out where the church of Sardis was failing. But before we continue, it's important to know that even though Jesus' approach to this church has changed, the heart that he has for his church has not. So listen to what we read in Revelation 3.1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I just want us to imagine for a moment what it would have felt like for the people of the church of Sardis to have received a letter from Jesus about their church. I mean, I would imagine that they would be eager, a little excited, expectant to see what Jesus had to say about their church, about them. And then to read the letter and to read the words, I know your works. Therefore, Jesus is saying, I not only see your actions, but I know your heart. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So the church of Sardis was a dying church. But I would venture to believe that they didn't always begin as a dying church. In fact, I'm sure that they started out as a church that was alive and filled with good intention. But somewhere along the way, they became unanchored to the word of God, thus finding themselves separated from him entirely. We read in Ephesians 2.12, which describes spiritual death as that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. And here we see a church that was outwardly prosperous, busy with activity, yet lacking any spiritual life. Paul in 2 Timothy warns us of these types of people, those having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. 
This means that there are people that claim to know God, but their lives are lacking the work of the Spirit, which would have resulted in holiness, perseverance, and effectiveness in advancing God's kingdom. But this was not true for the people of the church of Sardis. And for this reason, Jesus begins his letter by addressing the difference between their reputation and their reality. And what was true for the church of Sardis is true for the church today. Jesus knows the difference between our reputation and our reality. Our reputation is made up of the pieces and the parts of our life that we allow other people to see. Ultimately, it's how we desire to be perceived. But listen to what Jesus says to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He says, You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I believe if Jesus were to say this to the Pharisees in 2022, it would sound something like this. You portray the picture-perfect Christian lifestyle. You post and repost my word, but in your heart, you only believe about half of my word. You share the highlighted scripture in your Bible, but yet I can't remember the last time you sat down just to read your Bible. You call yourself a Christian, yet your heart doesn't reflect Christ in the way that you love and treat others. You see, if we understand the difference between how people see us and how God sees us, it helps us to understand how Jesus can look at his church and tell them that they are dead. Jesus also knows the difference between what we say and what we do. You see, you can claim to be faithful, to love God and follow Christ, but ultimately your works will reveal if what you say is true. We can say, I love and value my family, yet our intentional time that we spend with them suggests otherwise. We can say, I care about serving others, but then our time and our schedule doesn't allow us to actually serve. We can say, I care about the next generation, but then remain silent as the world continues to feed them lies. Perhaps if Jesus were standing before us today, he would ask us, what's keeping you from doing what you say? And I believe the answer is found in our own reluctance to acknowledge what it is that might actually be holding us back. Jesus also knows the difference between where we are and where we need to be. And that's why I believe Jesus was so blunt with his criticism to the church of Sardis. Notice that he didn't say, hey church, you know, you could be more alive if you would just blank. He didn't say that. Instead, Jesus was quick to identify their reality because he knew that if they failed to acknowledge the areas of their life that were dead, they would never be able to move forward. And to take it a step further, I believe it's important for us today to understand how it's possible to move from being alive and filled with good intention 
to hearing Jesus say the words, you are dead. And as we look at the different causes of spiritual death, I know that each person here today is bringing different life experiences to the table. But I believe that the Lord is going to resurrect those areas of your life today. Because it's important to understand that it is impossible to resurrect what we don't know is dead. We are about to shine light on what the enemy wishes that we would keep in the dark. The areas of our life that reveal where we are. Conformity, complacency, and calamity are all causes of spiritual death that are rooted in unbelief and occur when we place our trust in anything other than God. I would encourage you that as we go through each of these, to be honest, not only with yourself, but with God. And just ask him to reveal if any of these areas might be a reflection of where you are. And so we'll begin with conformity which occurs when we prioritize our acceptance by placing our trust in culture. And this happens when the approval of others begins to outweigh the approval of God. Conformity is both active and passive. We actively conform when we begin to bend and shift and twist the word of God to justify our sin, thus winning acceptance among people. And this temptation is not new. The enemy looked Eve in the face in the garden and asked her, did God really say? And her failure to believe the word of God is ultimately what led to her sin. And church, we face this same temptation today. Did God really say in Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness? We passively conform to culture when we look the other way while we know that our children are being lied to about their identity. And these lies are rooted in the denial of God's original intent. And you have to understand that. These lies are not new. They are the same. But nothing grieves my heart more as a kid's pastor than seeing children being inundated with lies and confusion when we as a church hold every answer and every truth right here. And that's why our kids team is on a mission to meet children where they are. But most importantly, when they walk through these doors, they are presented with the truth. But can I just tell you that one hour on Sunday is not enough to combat culture. And that's why we read in Deuteronomy 6-7, this instruction for the parents. When talking about the commands of God, God instructs you, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let it not be said that the children of this church are rooted in culture, but rather let it be said that our children are rooted in truth. For we read in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the Lord knows that acceptance from people is fleeting. And culture will always call you to conform until there's nothing left to conform to. Because they want you to compromise. But we have to stay true to God's word. Because God isn't calling us to, to, he's not telling you these commands to keep you from something good. He's calling you to protect your goodness. Which leads us to our second cause of spiritual death, which is complacency. And occurs when we prioritize our desires by placing our trust in ourselves. And this happens when we, within our own strength, begin to create a lowercase heaven serving lowercase gods. It's often a subconscious lull to sleep when we begin to prioritize and place all of our trust in ourselves, thinking that we don't need God. Or at least that's what we're suggesting when we stop pursuing him. And we create this lowercase heaven for ourselves when we begin to pursue our comfort over our calling. And some of the examples of this, and truly examples that the Lord has even worked on within my own heart, is that after a long day, how much easier it is to just put on our sweatpants, maybe turn on the TV, rather than going and serving those who need served at the Dream Center. Or maybe it's using our our paid time off, all of that vacation time that we've been saving up, to take the vacation to the resort with the white sand beaches, rather than going across the globe to a country that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Or maybe it's staying quiet at work and keeping God's faithfulness to yourself, knowing full well that your coworker needs Jesus more than anything. For we read in Romans 8, 6, for to set the mind on the flesh, and therefore to set our mind on any desire that is out of alignment with the will of God is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Again, in this command, God isn't trying to keep us from something good. He's helping us realize that within our own strength, we will never be satisfied because our comfort has never been the goal. And the third cause of spiritual death is calamity, which occurs when we prioritize our circumstances by placing our trust in a lie. Calamity is defined as a circumstance causing great and often sudden damage. And I believe that there are probably a lot of people in this room today that have experienced calamity. Maybe it's something that's happened to you. Maybe you've been violated or taken advantage of. Maybe someone has broke your trust in an unimaginable way. Or maybe it's something that's happened as a result of something that you've said or done. What I need you to know is that there is hope, there is healing, there is restoration, and there is forgiveness for you. But it's crucial to know that regardless of of your circumstance, 
there is always a lie connected to calamity. And the true threat is in whether or not you believe this lie. The lie that tells us that our circumstances reveal the true nature of God rather than his word. And the enemy would love for you to believe that lie rather than believing the truth that our circumstances revealed the true nature of this fallen world and our desperate need for a loving and righteous God. The need for a holy God worthy of our worship, even in the midst of our calamity. You see, Sheldon and I recently experienced a calamity of our own. When Pastor Chad asked me to preach on the dying church, what he didn't realize was that just 10 days prior, I had suffered a miscarriage. And I'll never forget when he asked me, all I could think about was, you want me to preach on something that I don't know if I've fully wrapped my brain around. How can there be life in death when I'm still dealing with the emotional pain. But I'll never forget the moment when the miscarriage happened. It was 2.30 in the morning, and I remember so vividly wrestling with the physical and the emotional pain while fully aware that I was fighting an even greater spiritual battle. Because the enemy wanted me to believe that this circumstance, this calamity, was pointing to a spiteful God rather than a loving God. And at 2.30, I remembered, I remembered the prayer that had been prayed over us in Africa. Immediately in that moment, I was taken back three years prior to standing in a room being surrounded by so many people praying over us in so many different languages. There was only one prayer that was translated. And that one prayer was prophetic in the sense that this pastor was telling us that every single time we encountered the faithfulness of God, we had to build an altar. An, an altar and then another one. He said, every time you experience God answering one of your prayers, build an altar. And the next time you encounter the faithfulness of God or you experience his presence, build an altar. And again, and again. So that when you come to the lowest point of your grief, of your trial, when you look back on your past, you will not see a flat and barren land. You will see the altars. And church, can I tell you that in the midst of our pain, I was fully aware that God had been faithful to us, that he is faithful, and that he will be faithful. It doesn't make it any easier. And I know that it is hard to wrestle with the pain while fully believing that God is faithful. And I wrote this message, this part of the message, one month ago, and then two weeks ago, we walked through another miscarriage. And it was the second time that I found myself really wrestling with, Lord, how can I feel all of these emotions while I know 100% that you are a faithful God? 
And I was reminded of Jesus in John 11 when he learns that Lazarus has died. He knows full well that by the time that he gets to him, he will have been dead. But Jesus also knows that he will resurrect him and raise him from the dead. Yet we read that Jesus wept in between the death and the resurrection. And I just, I want to share that with you today because you can feel the emotion of your calamity. You can feel the pain 100% while still 100% believing that Jesus is faithful. And that just freed me. Because the enemy wants you to believe that that your circumstances and your calamity and the pain that you experience and how you wrestle with that means that you can't also trust and have hope in a faithful God. But Jesus is such an incredible example that the two can coexist because Jesus, who knew no sin, he wept knowing that Lazarus would be resurrected. And church, we serve a God of resurrection power. And his desire for his people is that his church would experience the fullness of life this side of heaven. But more importantly, I need you to know that you can 100% believe in his faithfulness, even if the prayers aren't answered. Because that is the power of the Lord, that he meets us in our weakness and gives us strength. Which is why we read in Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis, after he brings them to their reality, he acknowledges the remedy for death. He gives them the solution, just like he always does. We read in Revelation 3:2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And Jesus' first command is to wake up. And what's so interesting is that in John 11, when he speaks of Lazarus, who has died, he literally says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Jesus then proceeds to go to Lazarus. He stands outside of the tomb and he calls out to him in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, he goes from death to life. We also read in Mark 5 where Jesus raises a little girl by taking her by the hand. He says to her, Talita kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. I think what's so beautiful is the very two different approaches to resurrection. Maybe you're here today and you need Jesus to cry out to you in a loud voice to wake up. But maybe you're here today and you need Jesus to stretch out his hand and take you by the hand and say to you, little girl, little boy, my daughter, my son, I say to you, arise. But in both of these examples, we don't see Lazarus or the little girl come back to life in their own strength. 
They were awakened when they encountered Jesus. And that's what you and I have to understand is that when we bring our dying marriages, our dying hope, our dying faith into the presence of a living God, we will see resurrection. Because get this, what we see as dead, God sees as not yet restored. So then Jesus says to the church, his second command is strengthen what remains. Can we just pause for a moment and just think about how crazy this is? Jesus just three words earlier calls the church dead and then tells them to strengthen what remains. I didn't pick up on this at first, but then it was probably at 2.30 in the morning one night, just woke up, and I realized that so many times in our human nature, we can't see life in death. But it is in the nature of our God to see life in death because that's the way that he created it. For we read in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is incredible because as long as there is breath in our lungs, even though we might feel dead, even though we might feel all hope is lost, there is still a purpose that God placed in you and he will see it to fruition. Which ultimately means that there is hope. Just think about that. While we have breath, we have purpose, so there is hope. And we strengthen our hope when we practice the spiritual discipline of remembrance. Which is why Jesus then proceeds to instruct his church to remember what you've received and heard. And thank you, God, for the gift of remembrance. When we're able to remember the faithfulness of God, I can assure you, in your darkest moments, you will be able to be met by a peace that surpasses all understanding. But if you don't take the time to build the altars every time that you encounter the faithfulness of God, what happens when you look and you don't see it? So what does it look like to build an altar to the Lord? For the Israelites, it looked like stacking stones. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. Now, I don't expect you to actually go home and stack stones in your backyard. I believe most of us probably would say our altars in 2022 look like taking the time to write down, to journal every time that God shows up in our life. Or maybe it's sharing in your small group every single time God has been faithful. But if maybe you're inclined to stack stones, then... I think it's really cool when we look at Joshua 4, 6, when it says, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So what was incredible about the stones that the Israelites would stack was not only a physical reminder and a visual one, when they would see it, they would remember how God was faithful to them, 
but it also served as an opportunity for the children to ask what these stones represented. Church, our children cannot remember what they have not heard or learned. And this instruction is not just for parents, because believe me, there are hundreds of volunteers across all of our campuses right now teaching children about the faithfulness of God. They're sharing how he has moved in their life. And I would encourage each and every one of you here today that is listening and tuned in to share the faithfulness of God with the children in your life, the children that the Lord has placed under your influence because they need to hear it. So celebrate it with them. But maybe you're here today and you've just been sitting there trying to remember the last time that God has been faithful to you. And as hard as you try, you just can't remember Can I just encourage you to open up the Word of God? Because this book is filled with 66 books of memories. Memories of God's faithfulness. And they all point to this incredibly faithful God. And the same God that moved in these stories is alive and moving today. And once you receive His Word and you believe it in your heart, then his next command is for all of us, which is to keep it. The Hebrew word for keep is shamar, which means to guard, watch, and protect. Because you see, now that you've woken up, now that you've strengthened what remains of your calling and the purpose that the Lord has put inside of you, and you've remembered that he is faithful, now he's calling us to protect all of it. And the people of Sardis knew from experience what it meant to be vulnerable to attack. So they would have immediately connected this point to their city's unfortunate past. It was when the watchmen of the walls weren't guarding that they fell to their enemies. And we face a very similar, very real enemy today. One that is looking for us to let our guard down which is why we have to protect our faith. But more importantly, we have to protect the trust that we have in God. Don't give in to conformity. Don't give in to the calamity. Don't trust any of the lies that the enemy tells you. Instead, continue to protect the trust that you have in God. So my question is, what disciplines can you establish and put in place that will not only protect your faith, but will protect your children's faith. And finally, we get to Jesus' final command to repent. And this is such a beautiful word that I believe so many people have placed a negative connotation on. This is the most beautiful command that just highlights the incredible nature of our God because he's, ta- he's calling us to throw off conformity, complacency and calamity, and return to him. He wants us to come back into relationship with him. He's saying, I mean, just imagine the creator of the universe standing before you today, looking at you and saying, I know that this life has been hard. I know it's not easy. 
you have walked through some very difficult seasons. You've put your trust in everything besides me, but today I am calling you to come back to me. This is the invitation that the Lord gives us repeatedly, every day. When you turn and start running the other direction, he's still there saying, come back. Every day the Lord will pursue you because he loves you. And I believe that when we continually put our trust in him, that we will experience the fullness of life, which is what he desires for his children. We read in Deuteronomy 30, 19, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Church, the choice is yours. Will you choose life? Jesus concludes his letter to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, 4, where he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Therefore, Jesus is saying, there are still a few of you who are dialed in, who have kept your trust in him. And to those people, he is saying, well done. Good job, my good and faithful servant. But I believe there are a lot of us that might relate to the others in Sardis, the ones who maybe have come up short, and maybe today you've realized that you've placed your trust in culture, in yourself, or in the lies. And to those of you, Jesus is standing before you, full of grace, full of truth, saying, now is the time. It is time to wake up. But what's beautiful is that he doesn't expect you to do it on your own. And Jesus himself serves as an incredible example that he isn't calling you to do something that he himself has not already done. But the difference is that Jesus didn't die a spiritual death because of misplaced trust. He chose to die for you and for me because he trusted the will of God. And we can put our trust in him because he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from death to life. And in Romans 8, 11, we read that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in those who call upon his name and believe in him. So if you're here today and you want to receive that power, you want to ensure that when you walk out of here today, you are fully alive. Believe me when I say that Jesus is prepared right now to clothe you in white, and call you worthy. So I would encourage you, if that's you, with every head bowed and eyes closed, I would just ask that you pray this prayer with me and just say, Jesus, here I am. I know that I cannot keep living this life on my own without you. For too long, I've placed my trust in everything besides you. But today, right 
now. I am choosing to place my trust in you. I'm ready to experience the fullness of life that you've called me to. So I surrender my life to you. Cleanse my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I receive your salvation today. And everyone said, amen.